Welcome to Fink or Swim Live on the Stunt Show, coming live to you from Beverly Hills, California, and heard around the world on NahumSiegel.com and the NSN app. The show is heard every Thursday at 1 Eastern Time, 10 Pacific Time, for all of you on the West Coast like me, with a cast of rotating hosts keeping you entertained. My name is Eliyahu Fink. Uh, my blog and Facebook page are active destinations for conversation about many of the issues facing our community and pretty much anything else on my mind. And we bring the, com- the conversation uh, of the, from the internet to the airwaves. And thanks to uh, the magic of the internet and uh, radio, we are able to talk about the things that we are usually typing and reading about online. Today's show will, um, you know, it's a good way to end the uh, calendar year for our show because uh, one of the things that's been a theme throughout the entire year of shows that we've done this year, the Sun Show, um, has, has been something that is very important to me as a as a rabbi and as as a as a Jewish person, as a participant in society, as as just a human being, and that is that there is a lot of of very very valuable things that we can learn. Um, that are really very connected to Torah and to Judaism and to the life that we live that are not necessarily from the sources that we would expect. Uh, sometimes we can learn a lot from places that are not Jewish. We can learn a lot from places that are not the Torah sources. We can learn a lot from places that are, you know, the kinds of places that you, you wouldn't expect to be learning moral lessons or ideas that are, um, that are helpful to, to people trying to live a good, positive life. Sometimes you do expect to see these kinds of lessons, and, and other times you even expect to see the wrong kinds of lessons. And then we can be surprised when we are uh, able to learn things that are very helpful and valuable to us as Torah-living Jews. In particular, uh, this, this past week has been, uh, I guess you would say, like a coming-out party or a festival or a celebration of a very, very prominent cultural phenomenon. Uh, the new Star Wars movie was released and people were able to attend their first uh, Star Wars movie in the last decade. Unlike the prequels, which ran from 1998 or something till 2005 for three episodes, um, which did not get very good reviews, this current Star Wars movie, J.J. Abrams directed, called Episode 7, um, has received incredible reviews almost across the board and is really considered to be a, a great success, not just of, uh, of profits, which it is, uh, pulling in uh, almost half, I think over half a billion dollars in the first weekend um, in, in worldwide. Aside from all that, um, it's been able to also uh, bring people back to the original Star Wars movies, which have such a strong prominent place in people's hearts that it's it's felt like uh it's it's 1977 all over again in in more ways than one now why am i talking about star wars not just because it's something in the zeitgeist something that's interesting something that people are interested in because i think that there's an important thing to learn in a very meta sense about how we can um experience torah in places outside of torah so the, the place that we'll start for this conversation, which will be the first part of our show today, and the second part of our show, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the movie itself and the series of Star Wars itself. But the first part of the show, we're going to talk about just the idea in general of trying to see if there's value um, in learning from places outside of Torah. And like I said, you know, this is something we've talked about all year, and not specific. We haven't been specific about it. We haven't said that we're talking about it, but we have, and now you know. But here is a case where you know it's a movie. And I think that um, for most more, most modern Orthodox Jews, movies are usually like you know on an ad hoc basis, kosher versus not kosher. Is this movie a good movie and not a good movie? And there are movies that people won't watch, and there are movies that people will watch. But beyond the modern Orthodox world, if you go into the world of the Shiva world, and certainly in the Hasidic world, um, watching movies is generally considered taboo. And not only is it generally considered taboo, if people do it, they hide it. If people do it, they feel guilty about it. If people Think about um, whether they should watch movies or not. The answer that they automatically kind of come up with to start with is no, they won't. But 
you know, what could we do? I have to. I feel like I want to. I'm, I, I'm so weak. But it's not. It's never out of a place of like this is something that you should do or this is something that is positive to do. It's always a place of um, like it's weakness that a person's watching a movie. And I'm not. I'm not here to disagree and say that it's not weakness to watch a movie. Maybe a person could spend their time other ways. But there are some things in movies and some movies in particular that one should not feel that way. Um, it doesn't mean that a person should just go to the movie. There might be other considerations, right? cultural considerations. There might be other issues that a person doesn't want to be exposed to. Like, there's a million reasons why a person wouldn't, watch, wouldn't want to watch a movie. But there's a difference between an objectionable movie and a movie that's objectionable because it's a movie. And the difference is like, you know, there are movies that show things or display things or teach things or portray things that people find objectionable. Whether you're Jewish, Orthodox or not, there are things that people don't want to see or the things that they feel aren't appropriate to see. Those movies, let's call those objectionable movies. But there's still a whole category of movies, and these really do exist, that are not objectionable. The only reason to object to them is because they fall into this broad category of movies, and we want to just make this broad category um, prohibition against watching movies. And that would be like, I would say, the, the, the mainstream view in the yeshiva world and the Hasidish world. There was, an, there, was a, there was an article written in Tablet Magazine by a woman who grew up not orthodox and uh, she grew older you know she was this big star wars fan growing up and she says that she is not going to watch this movie because now that she's orthodox she realizes that the values that are present in movies are offensive to her as an orthodox jew which you know is a is a very similar point to what we're talking about and i'll, I'll, I'll read to you in a little excerpt here from like the things that she says she finds objectionable in movies in general. So she says that, you know, she watched the Star Wars prequels, which is, you know, it's very complicated if you're not part of this uh, world already. But the original movies were in 1977 and in the, in the 80s, uh, all called Star Wars 4, Star Wars 5, and Star Wars 6. Then in the 90s and the 2000s, they made episode 1, 2, and 3, which chronologically occurred before the first original movies. But in time of when they were released, it's actually much later on. This movie, that one that we just saw, is seven, which occurs chronologically after six, and also was made after three. So there you have all the important uh, confusing things that make sure that the outsiders can always get caught, right? Like you can't pretend to be a Star Wars fan and not know that. So it's easy to it's easy to root out the, the heretics of Star Wars by by, by tripping them up on the order of the movies. Anyway, so she says, when the Star Wars prequels let me down, and this is pretty much a universal, um, universally agreed upon metric, most people feel that the Star Wars prequels let them down. She says, I started noticing other ways movies let me down. The bad language, the gratuitous violence, the glorification of promiscuity, the objectification of women, and the preoccupation with an almost unattainable standard of living. Films romanticized adultery and promoted shallow relationships based on love at first sight. Movies peddled many of the values I'd turned away from in becoming an Orthodox Jew. Now, I read this, and I said, I understand that objection. That's a fair objection under the category of movies that are objectionable. But not all movies are objectionable. In fact, we talk about this particular movie, Star Wars. Um, I wrote a letter to the editor of Tablet Magazine writing that in my entire life, I have never even seen or heard of such a popular movie that is any less objectionable than this movie. There is no bad language. The violence is not gratuitous and is pretty sanitized, almost almost like a comic book. There's no promiscuity. Women are not objectified. In fact, women are heroes in the story. The standards of living are meager. There's no adultery or either shallow relationships. And the values and the morals that I saw in this movie, in The Force Awakens, are completely consistent and complementary with Orthodox Judaism. And because of that, because it's such a kosher movie, of all movies, this is the one movie that I would say is not under the category of objectionable movies. Now, it doesn't mean it's for all ages, right? A, a young kid might get too scared from some of the characters in the movie, and there are people that might be sensitive to certain things. But in general, as a teenager, as an adult, there is nothing in this movie that is objectively objectionable. In fact, it is so unobjectionable that it's amazing to me that Hollywood is able to make movies that can be so exciting and so fun and so popular 
without having any objectionable material in it. I'm going to pull in my uh, producer here, Avrami. I'm just going to ask Avrami if he had the same feeling about how objectionable the movie was. Do you agree with this, that it's like the least objectionable movie ever? Um, I think I'd have to agree that for the most part, it is um, it is a very clean movie. Um, and like I w- I've already shown, like the first one to uh, to my son, I was a little bit worried at first, just because there's a little, there are some parts, I guess, which could be a little bit scary for younger kids, like you had mentioned. Um, but I can see also, like if you're looking at it strictly from, let's say, someone is worried about it, sneers kind of thing, or something like that. Like for example, like you're saying, they don't objectify women, and the women are warriors, and they're strong, and they're leaders. But, you know, they go around in pants and stuff like that, so some people might find that. There are certain issues that maybe someone would have, like, with a sneeze kind of thing or something, which someone that's, you know, not as you're saying modern or whatever might find in that sense objectionable. But uh, but you are, but I would agree that, you know, for the most part, they are overall very clean and very, like, family-friendly movies. Right. I mean, I guess if you're the kind of person that has to scrub a woman's face from a Jewish magazine, you're probably not going to want to see any show or movie that has a woman in it. But in the case of a person that was like, you know, I can handle looking at a woman's face and a, and a body that's covered up uh, the way that most people dress, I think that you would say that this is uh, definitely the way that they are portrayed in Star Wars. So that's the, that's the first level of this. And I want to say just one, I'm going to go one step deeper. And I want to think, I want to hear what you say about this, Avrami. The, the, the thing that I, I think is even more interesting about this is that not only is it not objectionable, but the values and the lessons that it teaches, the things that you can learn from the movie are actually very consistent with Torah, and they can be even considered Torah values. Like you can almost turn this into almost like a shiur. There's the stuff that you learn, the feelings you have from the movie, the, the way you want to be as a person when you see this is almost unequivocally positive and makes you feel like you want to be a better Torah Jew. Did you get that sense as well? Yeah, I would agree. It's all about um, you know people trying to do good, getting other people to do, to, to do good. The, the whole portion of the movie of people trying to defend those uh, that can't defend themselves against bad things, and you know I guess good against evil. And I, so uh, yeah, I would agree. All right, good. I'm not crazy, so that's good. Oh, or at least we're, we're maybe we're both crazy. But if I'm crazy, then I'm being crazy with you, and that's a good place to be, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna now uh, introduce our guest. We have a guest, a uh, very proud proud to announce um, our guest of today's show, which um, for me is like, I feel like a close friend of mine, even though we've only spent a few hours together, but those few hours were like, for most people, you know, you need to spend years and years to become very close friends with people, but uh, I think we had like a supercharged few hours, and uh, we became very close very quickly through this very similar thought process and, and way of looking at media in general. So it is with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce... Um, the dean of London School of Jewish Studies, um, and it's not limited to that, but uh, that's the title that my friend Rafi Zaram carries. Um, but aside from being the dean of London School of, Ju- of Jewish Studies, Rafi is also a well-known lecturer on the circuit of Jewish speakers, and particularly speaking about the questions that are uh, that are driven by um, media, culture, movies, and all the other things that come along with that. So let's uh, welcome in Rafi. How are you doing, Rafi? Very well. Good, good to uh, be on the show. Oh, I feel like this, the level of discourse on this show has like just gotten so much higher just because of the British accent. It's not even because yeah, of your great Yes, I can say anything, can't I? Say it again? It's a pleasure. So I love having uh, British-accented people on the show. It makes everybody sound smart. Yeah. You know what I noticed is that in the Star in the Star Wars w- world, a lot of the people that have British accents are definitely not um, the good people. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, but in general, I feel like if there's a British accent on somebody, you got to be wary of them. Yeah, well, it's always the foreign and the other, and movies always from the American point of view. So British get to be uh, the same language, but uh, something different, and therefore, well, scary sometimes, but also um, authoritative. So yeah, they can be they can be really bad. But I think yeah. you'll find in X-Men, it's both sides, right? <laughs> you have Xavier and Magneto, both English. So it's like, exactly. if you're going to be the leader, you've got to be English. This is true. And we, uh, we do appreciate the leadership of the, of the British, of the British um, people in our, in our films. Thank you for lending your accents to our American movies. You're welcome you, and, to And Ben us. Kenobi as well. That's true. He, that's that's you know, one of the exceptions, I, I right? Claim ben Kenobi. I'm, not, I'm not sure if I can claim Yoda given that the Muppets made it in England more. I'm not sure, but, you know, it's got a very Englishness there as well. 
Okay, you know, you could say that Yoda's like maybe like an early 20th century American accent, also like the uh, the kind of like um, you know the news ca- news broadcaster or sports narrator voice as well. So I, I want to get your your take on this uh, exact question that we're talking yeah. about here. Did you did you feel that it was a, a non-objectionable movie? But I think that that's an easy question to answer. I want to start talking with you about some of the deeper lessons and ideas that you could take from this movie that actually turned yeah. it into Torah. Well, well just I mean, just, yeah, I, well, let's do it. But let's just first just let's let's do on the, on the on the issue of kosher. Because I listened to your conversation, and uh, it's it's fascinating for me because the whole the whole issue is that you know if you're willing to see movies. Um, uh, now, here's the issue, actually, which is it doesn't really matter about clothing or any of that kind of stuff. What's objectionable is the idea that you can learn lessons from movies and not Torah for some people. That's the issue. You know, if movie illustrates a point that you already believe in, then you can just refer to it. But the idea of learning from it for some people is a shocking thing. That's right, the, and that's, that's what sets apart the kind of view that I Can I learn an idea have. from something outside of Torah? Pardon? Yeah, so I agree. That's the thing that I think sets you apart uh, from most people that kind of take lessons from movies. A lot of the curative organizations will take lessons from movies, but they're trying to show how a lesson they already have is exhibited in the movie. And what I think that you do right. and that what I try to do as well is to try and find the lessons in the mm. movie. And they're outside of Torah, but then you can just show how they're just good lessons and that you can appreciate them even if they're not ex- explicitly the same as, as a Torah lesson. So. Let's get into that a little bit. We have some time here. We got. We want to talk about this. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, Good, be okay. aware that you might hear things that you don't want to hear. You cannot unring that bell if you've heard something that you didn't want to hear. Um, but if you have seen the movie, right. feel free to stay along. If you haven't and you don't care about hearing spoilers, carry on. So in, so you talk, so in, that, in that case, uh, the big issue for me, I mean, in terms of, well, there's lots of, we, we talk a lot of stuff, but the initial issue about whether it's a, a good movie with, with good values and stuff. I mean, you can... I know you're going to say there's lots of positive issues from the movie and great lessons and good over evil. There are lots of movies are like that. But if you want to get down to the basic Jewish stuff of it, you can be very negative. I mean, they fail as parents, right? They don't stay together. They don't educate their child in their own ways. And he ends up destroying the entire family. So if religion and Judaism especially is about values and parents and families staying together and keeping their tradition going, then Han and Leah have screwed up royally, no? They have, but then the question, though, is what will we do with that, right? So then you have the two choices. You can say that either the movie is certainly not glorifying that, right? They're not made out to be like great parents, and they're not made out to be like this is what you sh- how you should raise children. But there is something about their story that I think is so helpful to people that are actually struggling with this. I actually felt that when I was watching the movie. I'm like, this is like the off the derech, and I use the term loosely because I really dislike it, but just for our audience, they'll know what I'm talking about. The off the derech kid and you know the parents who – they, they're, they're just so distraught over it that they cannot even get along, mm. how we deal with that. In other words, mm. I think that we can you know, go past like whether the story is telling us about good people as much as what we can learn from the actions and the choices and the decisions and the consequences of those people in the movie. Mm. But are you, are you, do you have to accept, if we're going to go for that, do you have to accept your child even if it kills you? So that way, that would be a lesson the movie was trying to say, perhaps? Even even as he falls, pardon? So that may be a lesson that... No, because I'm saying even even when he falls, he's still that last moment, he looks at him, it's like, it doesn't matter, I still forgive you. Right, and isn't that, like, something that we have to struggle with? We have to wonder, is that really how how far we should go? Should we go as parents to the extent that if... No matter what our child does, we still love them? Or is our love for children... I mean... yeah, it's, it's true. And I, I think someone did some research about, you know, the whole thing about sitting shiver for someone who marries out. You know, apparently it's not actually true. No one actually ever did it. There's like one source that talks about it later on. Um, but no one actually ever did that. It's kind of like a fallacy, like a hole in the sheet type thing. You know, no one ever sat shiver for somebody marrying out in terms of a halakhic source on that. Um, but, you know, it, it's the other end of that, which is one end. At what, at what point do you say, you know, you're not part of me anymore, you've done evil? At what point do you say, I forgive you no matter what? I don't, you know, I don't know. But uh, the movie does struggle with that, but it seems to say, and you could argue it's a very liberal approach of there's nothing a child can do that will make a parent ever walk away, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe you need to be tough. I don't know. Right, so we, we obviously don't have all the answers. And if we did, I think people would have a lot easier time, you know, dealing with this stuff. And I think that there's a tendency in insular communities to err on the side of banishment as opposed to unconditional love. And I think that pushing towards love a little bit is that, or even a lot is definitely going to be useful for most people. I don't think that we have a tendency to err on the side of giving too much love. It's possible that it happens here and there, 
But generally, the stories that I hear from the inside, the things that come to me from like people right. that are okay. struggling through things, is that they have been uh, hurt by uh, withholding of love as opposed to going too far. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. Right now, tell me, tell me how you felt when uh, when when Kylo Ren is davening uh, to his grandfather. Ah, when he wants to be as good as who he wants to be. Well, it's interesting how he. I mean, we don't, we don't know how he got into the whole um, dark side of the, the Force. You know how that grew on him and went away from his parents. Uh, but there's something. What? Well, look, he's copying him. He's wearing the same outfits, and it's black, and it's head to toe. So you can do what you want with that. But it's a, is it a more clear world? But it's a, it's a heartless world. It's an emotional world, right? It's an emotionless world. He can't have any emotions to be part of that, which seems a bit weird. Um, I never quite understood what that means. Why would you want that? Because it makes you more powerful? You know? So because, my, you know, he has to get rid of any emotion by killing his father, but then he has to, he wants, he loves his grandfather. So what does that mean? So my understanding of the entire, um, the, for, the dark side of the force is that when a person acts from the side of hatred or anger, when a person acts mm-hmm. out of a sense of that they are trying to negate something, they are trying to break something, they are trying to hurt something, that's where the, that, that, that's the dark side. And that's easier for people because I think that that's a more immature reaction. Our initial reaction is generally a selfish, right. I am hurt, I want to hurt back kind of reaction. And the mature reaction, right. the, the, the force, the light, the night, the good side, is the side where people are acting out of love. Even if you're hurting somebody or, or, or even, or even killing somebody, it's out of an act of love either for that person or for your, for your other, for the other person that needs to be protected. And that takes an elevated sense. You're not acting selfishly. You're not acting immaturely. You're acting in a way that's positive and good. And that requires more effort for people to get there. So even if the results might look the same sometimes, you always, you can't always tell if the Jedi, the good guys or the bad guys is, is it good or bad to be a Jedi? If, if you look at it from the perspective of who is acting out of a sense of responsibility and love for others and who is acting out of a sense of selfishness mm-hmm. and acting in the most uh, impetuous way possible, that's how I see the dark side versus uh, the force. Mm. Mm. No, I do. I understand that. But what, what I don't understand is why he doesn't feel, I get into the story of the thing, you know, like the whole great point of the grandfather is he was able to turn at the last minute. You know, he was able to love his son. So why can't Kylo Ren understand that? Why was he never taught that? Or when he was taught the Force, was that a bit missed out? Or was that yeah, I think that that's the him? answer. I think that, you know, you, you think about what happens with when, you know, when Rey hears that there's actually a real Luke Skywalker, and she's like, he's a real person? Wow, I thought it was a myth or a legend. I don't want to talk with you about that in a moment. But it seems that the people of this generation are very unaware of the legends. They haven't seen Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. They haven't seen those movies. Yes. All they know is kind yes. of stuff that's been tradition and passed on, and it hasn't been preserved very well. So it's reasonable to assume that Kylo Ren does not even know that his grandfather did Teshuva on the last moment, and he just assumes that he was this bad guy all along, and that he was this master right. of the dark side. And because and of that, he doesn't know yeah. that there was any other option. Yeah, it's possible. Or he chose to ignore those stories or focus on other bits. I can, I can see all that. I mean, that whole issue, which we should get into it, because it's massive, of what the, what the reboot and the whole process is. There was a wonderful interview with Han Solo, which I read, about that. Because the two, you know, uh, clips they put on the trailer um, were clever what they were doing. You know, there's, there's the two, there's him and Chewie saying we're home, and there's him turning to the young Ren and, um, and Finn saying it's true, it's all true. Um, and and, and uh, Harrison Ford said in his interview that actually once you see the movie, there's a lot more depth to what I'm doing in those two scenes. And what he talked about, which makes so much sense, is that it's not just about his character, it's about the whole series. So that when he says we're home, in other words, he's, he, yes, he's re-entered Millennium Falcon for the first time in 30, 32 years. But what's happened is because you've had the backstory of these new characters, the story is alive again. It's not just he's walked into it, but the story is alive and the myth survived 30 years. It didn't get forgotten. So yes, the, the children now don't know what it is. No, their, their overage dads or mums are taking them to see the movie. But, um, but it's, it's a lie. It, it's, um, it's continued and they're home as a result. And when he says it's true, I mean, there's two things there. One is that you know, the myth becomes true if everybody makes it so. Or we have by, by keeping it as part of our lives. So it becomes something that's true. But more than that is, and I'd forgotten this, Solo doesn't believe in the first movies, right? Right, right, right. I've been across the galaxy. I don't see anything like that. I don't believe in the hocus pocus stuff. And now he says it's true. I mean, he's he's done shiver. Right? He now believes. He's seen it with his own eyes, right? So he can't even deny it anymore if he wanted to. 
that's true, but I think it's more than just that he, yeah, it's not, like he, he can still see it as weird stuff. Is it, is it because of his own son? Is that the reason why? He thinks it's really true, or because he's just matured? And maybe part of this is being able to see, you know, bigger issues. Although he does go back right. to smuggling, so that's the way yeah, I wonder about I, that. Yeah, and I think... But, uh, I, think... But the, the, I, mean, I mean, for myth to talk about truth is... Look, Glennis, in, in Return of the Jedi, when I realized, and I was, I mean, I was young when I watched it, but it took years after until I realized that the moment when I realized this is a true myth is, is actually about two-thirds of the movie when the Ewoks, they, they found the Ewoks, and now they're in their village, and they're, they're not going to kill Anson anymore, and so they think Supio is a god. And Supio starts explaining the story, basically, of a, final, of, a, of a a new hope to the Ewoks. And it's basically storytelling in its classic, by firelight, by, by, you know, in a fire, in a forest at night. And he's telling a story by waving his hands of stars. And basically, within the movie, they're making the movie into a classic myth. And at that moment, I realized, oh, I get what they're doing with this. And, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a true myth. And I think that's why it survived 30 years later, because of that. And now they're, and I think J.J. has understood that, and he's keeping it going by Han Solo saying it's true, it's all true to these young people. That's the big circle for me. Right. I mean, there's a million parallels between this episode and obviously elements of uh, all of the episodes of Star Wars. Some of them have some episodes, some things are in all episodes, uh, some themes and some actual yeah. lines even. But but in terms of yeah. uh, you know, it mirrors the episode four, which is the birth of the new of the young Jedi. Uh, at that time, it was Luke, yeah. and now it's Rey. Um, so yeah, there's this whole question about you know nostalgia, and there's nostalgia like you're saying about how the story is told within the story, the myth is told within the myth. Uh, there's also the nostalgia mm-hmm. within the nostalgia, because not only are all the fans nostalgic, all the people that want to see this movie nostalgic, and uh, the whole world is waiting for this new movie, and there's nostalgia there. The movie itself is a movie about nostalgia in a certain sense, because the the right. characters that are young that are growing up are lacking some of the nostalgia, but they have a little bit of a memory, a faint memory of some things. But there's a huge mm. like like connection that the people have to the past, and depending on to which past one is connected to that kind of determines where one will be in the present. And that, to me, is the actual story of modern-day religion. That is religion. Right. Right, so what you're saying is, we, we, we reinvent, so you and I, you, you, you and I give divetan, we think we're being original, and to some extent we are, but we're replaying stuff that our you know, rabbis of uh, 50, 60 years ago said, and we're kind of... We're giving the, we're, you're, you're teaching the Sedra as if it happened yesterday, and 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 bringing alive these characters from from, from the Sedra, and they become they become true in our in our world. But actually, our ancestors were doing this as well, and we might not be completely aware of it, but we're doing the same as them. Is that what you're saying? Is that is that is that what you mean? Well, in terms of storytelling, that's a great great way of uh, of connecting the two. I'm I'm talking though about an, another level now, okay? Because besides for the storytelling myth of of Star Wars, and aside from the star the the, the storytelling of of Judaism and all religion. We have rituals, we have practices, we have things that connect mm. us to the past. So you mentioned earlier that Kylo Ren dresses like his grandfather, okay? To me, like, this right. is the ultimate uh, Hasidic dress, right? So let's say Hasidim in, mm. in the 1700s dressed that way because it was cold, and they wanted to stay warm. They wore fur hats, mm. they wore long coats, that's how people dressed. It was cold, they wanted to be warm. It was purposeful. They had to wear that stuff because they needed to stay warm. They couldn't wear the clothing that they would wear in Africa, right? But then, mm-hmm. uh, 250 years later, you're living in, uh, in, in in Los Angeles and you have people wearing fur hats and long coats in the summer because that's what they wore 200 years ago. And the reason they're doing right. it is not because they need to stay warm. It's because they want to recreate the past in the present. So Kylo Ren does not mm-hmm. need to wear an outfit like Darth Vader. Right. He doesn't right. need to look like he's a machine. He doesn't need the mask. He He's completely healthy. Darth Vader had it because it was his survival kit. He couldn't will live without it, as you see at the end of episode three. So Kylo Ren, by wearing the old clothing as an homage, as a tribute to his grandfather, is really saying it doesn't matter why he wore it. It's still valuable now because it has the meaning of my grandfather's life. And we do that, and that, I gave the example of Hasidim, but I, we do that in Judaism all the time. There are so many things that are almost anachronistic that are connected to specific places and times that now we do because they have different, more um, relationship-based meaning as opposed to practical ritual-based meaning. I get that. It's brilliant. I get that. Do you see, do you have a, are, you, are you critiquing that or you say we need to, we need to do that? It's a great question. I think there are... Uh, limitations to where this can outrun its usefulness, but I think that as long as we acknowledge that that's what it is, I think it's great. 
The problem I have mm. is when we start to do things that are nostalgic and that are things that are not necessarily for the same purpose as they were originally intended, and they are just because we want to signal that we're part of that old group, but we don't admit it to ourselves. We don't say that's why we're doing it. We don't right. think about that. That's why we're doing it. We, don't, we certainly wouldn't tell somebody else that's why we're doing it. And when we don't right. say well, that well, we're well, not we honest about it, that's we're doing it because we need to do it. And we think we need to do it. I know. I understand. It, it, I, for me, it's the, the debate I think between essentialism and constructivism. Right? The essentialist says, "I need. If I don't wear the Darth Vader mask, I can't be a true dark side master because it's essential." And and the constructivist says, "No, that's what you know. I, I can. I'm, I, I don't need to, but I'm building it because it connects to my grandfather, and that will help me do it." Well, that's exactly what the dichotomy is. But I would argue that constructionism is actually a form of essentialism. If that's the way you can construct it, then it's essential to you for your construction. So right, if you right. want well, I mean, to do I, I something... I think Yeah, go on. Yeah, so yeah, I was just going to say, if you want to do something that brings, out, brings back the past, you may need a signal to yourself that makes that feel like it's more authentic, so you may need to dress that way in order to build that entire environment. So it, it becomes mm. essential, but it wasn't essential for, yes. the, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the action itself. It's just essential for your participation in the action. Exactly. Uh, I, I agree 100%. For me, the example, which I love, is that Hashem's the first to do that. It's an amazing Ramban. I don't know if you've seen it on the rainbow. You know, because the Ramban says, what, you think there are no rainbows before the end of the flood? You know, if you look at Greek, you know, if you look at, uh, we know from Greek thought that it happens any time light, you know, is refracted. That's a natural phenomena, right? I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the new article Ramban, any time he mentions anything Greek, doesn't do any footnotes, but it's clearly there. So then he says, obviously the rainbow existed earlier, but Hashem used it as a symbol because a rainbow happens when it's about to rain and thunder and maybe Hashem's changing his mind. And so he adopted a symbol in nature to become the way of remembering. And then he gives lots of examples where this happens. And I love that because what it's basically saying is, is that it's not essentialist, right? Physical reality happens on its own. But even Hashem takes the physical world and turns it into meaning. And therefore, if Hashem does it, it has to be essentialist because it's Hashem. But it's still nevertheless constructivist because it wasn't there in nature. So from then on, once I've seen that, you know, then, and, and the Ramban, it's a brilliant Ramban for me because it's saying exactly what you're saying, which is that we can, you know, if we believe enough, we make it reality. You know, I would say, first of all, that's a beautiful Ramban. So it's an essential Ramban, to borrow a term. But you know <laughs> what I say is that that is not only true about mm-hmm. things like the rainbow. It, I think that's really mm-hmm. the purpose of all of the mitzvahs of the Torah. They are examples. There are ways for us as humans to do things, actions, that humans do anyway. Most of yeah. them, at least. There are a few things that we do that are completely like odd or strange that are not found in other cultures, or even if they are found in other cultures, they always have some ritual meaning. But generally, the things that we're doing are things that humans do. And what the Torah gives us is opportunities to turn each of those things, each of those rituals, each of those actions into moments of connection to the greater thing of God or of Torah or of Judaism or to each other or to unity, whatever the thing it is that is being connecting to in that moment. But the point of it all is not to say that these things are only things because they're, they're made into mitzvahs. They would be things on their own. The mitzvah is just what makes it special. Mm. Yes, I understand that. Yes, it ritualizes it, and it gives it a kavanah and a focus, and therefore, you know, uh, we all want to be good people, but, we, but mitzvot kind of force us or encourage us to kind of frame that goodness and, and therefore do it, which you wouldn't do it otherwise. That's how I feel. Right, right, so, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm more negative about it, which is that, you know, I'm an okay person. I'm not a great person. And this sort of forced me to be good, to be more aware. And, and, and the, so the actions I do are more meaningful, absolutely. Oh. Excellent. Did you enjoy right. the Star Wars movie ultimately? Did, did you enjoy the movie? Like, were you excited or did you feel like it was just a rehashing for? Or did you. So here's how I look at most movies. I am very much a feelings-based reviewer. I'm not interested as much in the technical aspect of a film. I'm not even as interested in whether the story is plausible or well-told. Those things all are secondary, or they can be explanations for why I felt a certain way. But I first judge a a movie on feeling. And just to give an example, so I... I I loved Inside Out. Inside Out is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. And one of the reasons I loved it is because of its brilliance. But I wouldn't judge it based on its brilliance to say that that's why I liked it. I don't know why I liked it. But I do know that for every second that I was watching that movie, I was either crying, laughing, smiling, or feeling something. And the the way that uh, a way a film could connect to you in such a deep way 
that tells me mm. that that's a good film. Now, the question about whether, you know, what what's the feeling, whether it's a good feeling, whether it's done well, all that's a separate question. So on a very simple level, mm. Star Wars engaged me, this movie is specifically, engaged me more than any of the other Star Wars movies. I felt more connected to this story than I had to any of the others. I felt more entertained. I laughed more. I even cried a little more. I felt more. I feel J.J. Abrams made me feel more than any other Star Wars movie I've ever experienced. Well, it's interesting because if you read interviews with him, you know, when they read, I don't know if he's ever story of making the movie, but well, part of it he said, I began with the issue of what do I want the audience to feel? What do I want the experience to have? And the story came out of that. So that, that's how he does these things. And you so, can tell. You know, you're spot on with that one. Yeah. Right? No, so I mean, it's interesting because he did the same with, with, with Star Trek. It's not a remake and it's not new. It's a kind of, I think he calls them reboots, which is where you're building on, on the patterns of the past by doing it in a new way, which is quite a clever thing to do. So, no, I, I, was, I, was, uh, I was taken away with it. I did enjoy myself. And going with my daughters as well was great. And building uh, a bridge. Um, I, they saw the four, five, and six. But they, uh, it's, it's made for their age group as well, which I quite enjoyed. So Yeah, so to I it. took my uh, 12-year-old son, who had last year for the first time seen four, five, and six, which, by the way, I'm going to just give you a little anecdote. It was like such an experience for me to watch him watch um, Darth Vader tell Luke that he's his father. Right? You only get to see that once. Yeah. The first time somebody finds out yeah. that information in their life is like this moment, like this light goes on in their face and like you see this happen. You only get to see that once. And I made sure I cherished that. I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to waste it. I made sure that he didn't yeah. see it anywhere no, else. I, and I, I didn't even know myself, about it. I, it's amazing. I find myself when I watch these movies with my children – Every so often looking at them, not so that they look at me and say, and that we're jointly getting it, but to watch the wonder in their, in their eyes the first time out. Yeah, uh, so I think it's worth appreciating that. You know, the first, I live in Los Angeles, and like I, my younger son, he's never in his memory, you know, when he was little maybe, but sometime he was three until last year in the winter, he had never experienced snow. And we were in New York for my brother's wedding mm. in February, and it was snowing outside. He like runs outside, he like sticks his hands up, looks up at the sky. And you only get to see your kid reacting to seeing snow for the first time once. You know, yes. it was the same kind of idea. Yes. There's a wonder but, to it, and you you want to appreciate those moments as a parent and as a person in this world. You want to appreciate all those moments of wonder wherever they come from, whether it's nature, film, or Torah. Mm. But, but there's, there's, there's one more as well which I didn't reckon on. I'll tell you about which had just happened after the movie because my daughter. I, every time we watch movies, we watch Back to the Future and that stuff. I keep telling them, "You get to see it tomorrow. I have to wait three years for the next one to come out." And my, and my daughter would go, yeah, Abba, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my daughter turned around after Star Wars and he said, Abba, I'm like you now. I've got to wait two years to find out what happened next. <laughs> and, in this, and this world of immediateness where everything is soon and everything is on Blu-ray in five seconds, actually, she now, like me, has to wait. And I'm really happy because delayed gratification, that, that build of desire, what will it be, that excitement, is something that can carry on. So it's weird, even though we've got an immediate world, films still take a long time to make. And I'm thank God for that. I agree. Actually, it's a great point. Um, yeah, waiting for stuff is not something that our generation is is used to doing at this point. But there are things that we do wait for. You know, you go to a good restaurant, you wait for your food. It's not fast. It's not instant. Mm. It's not ready for you in advance. You want to see a good movie, you're going to have to wait. These things require time. Even going to a movie takes I mean you have to wait. You have to get there a few minutes before it starts. You have to watch to do some previews. Yeah. It's it's a process yeah. that uh, that that has so many rituals associated with it, including the waiting. That I think the rituals and all those little things, the little the smells and the tastes and the feeling, do have a, a big a big part to play in how uh, the movie experience goes. Let's get back to the movie for a moment because I was saying that I felt like all these things that I loved how I felt. I, I do want to go maybe a little bit more micro for a moment about what it was that okay. made me feel those things because I thought about it. You know what what was it those what were those things that made me feel so engaged and so attached to the movie? So in one sense, I think we spoke a little bit about this earlier, which was you know, how I see it as a metaphor in so many ways for religion and for connecting to religion and connecting to uh, religion to, uh, to the past and, you know, how we can become so skeptical and a, certainly a, the next the subsequent generation becomes more and more skeptical. And I felt like when, when Han Solo said, like, it's true, all of it, and this look on her face was like, you mean it? Like, this is not just a myth, it's really true? That was, a, that was something I wish that I could, like, capture because that's something we need to give over to our children, to the next generation, and to ourselves too. But to not just, you know, be impressed by Judaism, but also to feel some of that sense of wonder. Um, and that was kind mm. of my, my, my real aha moment about, you know, how this is really a good metaphor, metaphor for um, the way we, we connect to religion. Yes. 
I mean, the whole point of a myth is it's true when you're inside it, right? And even if you know you're inside it, the fact that you feel inside it makes it true. And so there's an irony in a made-up movie that he says it's all true. But inside a tradition, when you give a sheer, and I'm sure you've done this, when you've, you've made those connections and you've touched something deeper and the audience feels it, and even though they know there's different opinions and they're going to walk out the room in 10 minutes and get a coffee and things are going to change, at that moment, there was a truth. It's true. And they feel that. And that holds people in. And I think, I, I agree with you absolutely, that, that, that's a, a magical moment. He's looking, he's standing in the stars, isn't he? Because he's standing in the middle of that three-dimensional di- three projection of finding Luke, which they're also doing as well. So it's like he's being kind of, you know, ethereal, as it were. Right. I mean, so this whole idea of, like, really finding a sense of wonder in our traditions and our stories and our rituals, I think that's super important. I think that this movie uh, definitely taught that to me, and I love that part of it in the sense of, like, the movie, but also in the sense of what it could teach me beyond that. But the other thing that I really enjoyed mm. about the movie um, in terms of, like, you know, structure and how it told the story was that it didn't shy away from being a, a, a basically a smorgasbord of tropes, I called it. You know, like... Yeah. People think you have to think of like reinvent the wheel, say something new that's so new that nobody could ever think that anybody never said it before. And there's this, like there's like this a huge bias towards trying to be so original and avant garde. And I have a I actually have that bias towards it myself. Like I myself feel myself pulled in that direction. That's my dark side almost. And it's easy <laughs> almost like for me to go there. But I loved that the movie was 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 owning it. It's like we're okay with this. This is the same story again. It's the same elements. It looks the same. It has like things that are just a little different and a little twist here, a little twist there. But this story is so good, we can tell it over a million times, and it's going to still be good. That to me was like the eternity mm. of truth. Torah's like that. How many times has Torah been told? We read it every I, I, year, and it's still amazing every year. I agree, but and I think you'll like this, but. They do a dramatic change, which is so powerful and strong that even though they then do normal things afterwards, I think they're making a point about repeating it. So, you know, for a stormtrooper to take his helmet off, right, it's not just that we haven't seen that, but we, why do you ever see stormtroopers' faces? Because they're evil, they're Nazis, and, they're, and, therefore, and they deserve to die. And if I see their face, I might see them as human beings and care for them. And they can't change size as well, you know, so there's no good orcs in Lord of the Rings or bad elves. Right? So when a stormtrooper takes his helmet off and changes sides, that is a dramatic change. Right? You're right. But You're then, right. as you say, they then do the chop of the same movie. So what I think it might be hinting for me is that, you know what? Not only can you repeat these traditions thousands of years later, even in a postmodern world where evil can become good or good can become evil, which is your student stormtrooper, nevertheless, you can still do the old stuff. Brilliant. So that's exactly you that's know, what you're I taking what I said, taking a step forward. I was actually going to say next that my favorite part of the movie was that the stormtrooper took off his helmet. And this is like, I think, the most important message of all in the movie. This idea of like the stormtrooper can take off his helmet and like just think about it. What are we doing? And we all have stormtrooper moments. We're all part of some herd somewhere. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not, whether you're Jewish or not, whether you're American or whether you're British or whether you're in any culture anywhere. We're all stormtroopers of something at some point. Um, yeah. Whether it's family, yeah. whether it's religion, whether it's atheism, whether it's sports, whether it's a culture, whether it's media, whether it's music, anything. We are all stormtroopers at some mm. point. And the, 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 the thing we have to always try to do is remember to take off that helmet and to humanize ourselves and to allow ourselves to have that choice. Yeah. You know, Finn says, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. And that kind of strength is like, first of all, superhuman because he's in a place where that risks his life. Most of us, the stormtroopers that we are, are not usually life risk, uh, life taking, life ri- taking life, taking risks that will risk. I can't even think of the sentence, but we, you know what I'm saying. They're not, yeah. they're not <laughs> of the same, the same gravity. So uh, of course there are exceptions. You know, there are people that are in, um, in, in death cults, and if they leave, they'll be killed. Or there are people in very insular communities. Right. If they leave, they'll be ostracized. They'll lose everything. But to appreciate mm. how much it takes to do that, first of all, and then second of all, to yeah. always consider how we can do that. Because taking off the mask, the stormtrooper that takes off that mask that says, I'm not going to be a stormtrooper anymore. To me, that's the most inspirational part of the movie, and that's something that we all need to think about in all the aspects of our lives. Yeah. No, no I agree. I, I mean, two, two things I want to say on that. One is that, um, you know, by hearing his childhood, and he's brought up to do this and taken away. I mean, also, spoilers for maybe future movies, you might, you might find out who his parents are one day. But I think that, they, but that whole process, absolutely. You, you, it, it's, 
they want to explain to you not only can you change, but why you might have been a stormtrooper. So you understand that's what he was made to be. So I agree on both those. But uh, but um, there's there's another aspect to it. Oh, what was that? I forgot what I was going to say on that um, issue. But it's uh, it's, a, it's another key issue about him changing and becoming becoming a reason he takes that clothing off. Um, it's about his understanding of what it means to be a stormtrooper. He never really changes. Um, uh, I forgot what I said on that. So it's a key point because he's. Um, oh, that's it. Oh, yes. Oh, it's horrible. That's why I'm going to block it out my mind. Mm. Because he's a Nazi, right? Stormtroopers are Nazis. But also, he doesn't have a name. He's only got a number. So they're also victims. I hate saying it, but they're victims as well. I mean, to do both, he's only got a number and he's a Nazi. I mean, it's both sides of the shot. Wow, that's a great point. I mean, I think that maybe a lot of the people in the Nazi army felt that way too. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I think that yeah. they also felt like, um, even if they had a name, they felt like a number because you're part of this massive, yeah. well-oiled machine of like death yeah. and killing, and you almost feel like you're just a part of this this machine as opposed to having your own self-identity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in Bamidbar, it's an issue my love. That's just one of my guys points out. You know, it, it, we, have a, we have counting. Jews get counted in time, even though we don't like counting. There is a counting in Bamidbar twice. But each time, the phrase is mispar shemot, the number of the names. If you're going to number people, and you know, they used to hand in a thing with a name on it, you mustn't lose a name. So when you count people, you've got to emphasize that you don't lose your name individuality, even when I count somebody. So it's always mispar shemot, which I think is a very clever point. So you never lose that individuality. And the fact that he makes a name out of his number, FN Finn, is the reinvention of identity when it's lost. That's how you come back. Which I think is wonderful that he does that. Um, right. He calls it, you, you know, he gets you, named, as it were. Right, I mean, the, that naming was like, uh, it became like, a, a, the fact that he had an identity for the first time, I, it was just such a powerful moment. You know, I think people that are part of cults yeah. or of large families even sometimes, or even sometimes uh, communities that don't give people a chance to be individuals, when they have an opportunity to mm. do something that's individualist, individualized it's like such a heady passionate um like life-altering experience because they've never had that before and finn really um really mm. demonstrated that in a very very strong way yeah and i was, I was also very excited about the uh the, the feminist side of it as well having just seen suffragette um and having two daughters you know the fact that i love the way he and she says to him why do you keep trying to hold my hand <laughs> it's brilliant i mean <laughs> it's such a, a a nice point to notice um uh, you know, that issue of, of uh, women need to be looked after by holding their hand. I don't know, have, you, have you seen Jessica Jones, by the way, the series? No, but I know that that's kind it's of the same kind of theme there. And I, and I think this is actually right. so important because it's, a, it's like so ingrained in society that we're almost not even, we don't even notice it. People don't even notice that women in movies and, and television shows are generally portrayed as either eye candy or they are, um, they are like, they need the help of men. They're never able to be self-sufficient. And the truth is, that's not the way yeah. the world works. I mean, we all know very strong, very powerful, very, um, very accomplished women in this world. And of course, we all need each other. Men need other men and women. Women need other women mm. and other men. But we have to kill this idea in a certain sense. This is an idea that needs to be destroyed. Like, I feel yeah. like this is one of the most important um, parts of like the evolution of society in, in our time. Mm. Is like we have to destroy this idol, this idol that says that that women need men and men do not need women except for rearing children. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because there's a stormtrooper that is a woman, which they do as well. Um, and he doesn't, he, he, and he relates to her in a kind of different kind of way. But, but absolutely, but, but when, but when he, he keeps trying to save her, it's kind of because, you know, in a, you know, in a New Hope, you know, Luke grabs the woman and jumps across the, the ravine, right? In the classic, I'm holding on to you. Like, you know, like, uh, like Superman saves Lois Lane, you know, I've, you know, I've got you, you know, you, you've got me, who's got you, all that great, that great moment. But, you know, you can't do that today. So even though they're taking a fairy tale, now she gets to save him, and it changes it around. Just one thing, in the Jessica Jones, you haven't seen it yet, but I won't spoil it for you, but one thing a friend, I Naomi Alderman, who's a great writer and a feminist, said to me, she said, actually, I said, why did you love Jessica Jones that much? And she said, because she never smiles, right, once, unless she's being forced to. And I said, well, why is that so important? She said, well, you don't understand. Men own women's smiles. So what do you mean? She goes, when, she goes, when a woman goes down the street, a man will say, you know, it gives a smile, love, you know? And there's an idea that a woman has to smile for a man to kind of keep that pretty, that nice bit side around. And, 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 it's, and a lot of women get upset that that feel that has to be done. Um, and she said, what I liked in the movie is that, you know, she, this woman, Jessica, is never willing to do that. 
And I think also Ren in this really is a great character. It's all about being strong, because I hate the phrase strong woman, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, She's it's like it's, that's, the bias is built in. Yeah. So, um, and she was fantastic, by the way. Uh, which yeah. I think made it work as well because I think yeah, she I mean, had to carry this, this it. This point, though, know, like, you know, and I was just, the, you know, I mean, by the end of the movie, did, did if you felt this, I was more interested in her than the old guy. Oh, for sure. I actually don't have this like very, um, you know, obsessive, you know, connection to Han Solo like a lot of people do. A lot of Star Wars fans think he's the best character in the movies and all that. I don't feel that towards him. Right. You know, he's funny, whatever, but I feel like he's also like a little aloof, and I don't connect to him as well. Um, so I actually mm. was happy whenever he wasn't on the screen he kind of drove, drove the story in a certain sense but i wanted to see the young right. people i was immediately attracted to them in fact jj abrams brilliance to me was like how much you cared about these characters right away and i would say the same actual thing he did in star, star trek you know one of the most amazing scenes of any movie i've ever seen honestly this is one of the most powerful scenes i've ever seen is the first scene in the first star trek that he did where you know you learn yeah. how captain kirk was saved by his father and like himself sacrifice and he's like watching his his, yeah. his son and wife escape as he blows up. It's like so moving and powerful, and you immediately care about Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. I think he has but, a it, way of getting you to homage, care about character. Although it is, it, it is a little homage to Pardon? I was just saying he has a way of getting you to care about characters very quickly. No, absolutely. But it is a bit of homage to Revenge of the Fist, Fist at the end, with the birth of uh, Leia and, and uh, Luke as well. A, a bursting moment and a death and a destruction at the same time, um, but absolutely. And uh, and in the same way, Star Trek, with having Spock as the old character handing on, he's rebo- uh, rebooting and reinventing at the same time. Uh, very much so. Right, and that's I think you know if I wanted to bring us back to like a lesson that we can learn, you know, I think that modern orthodoxy in general, but but specifically, you know, uh, the modern orthodoxy that seeks to kind of na- na- uh, own its own narrative and not just kind of like let things fly and see how it goes, um, is, is, is in dire need of not a reboot in like a very, a very dramatic sense, but a J.J. Abrams reboot. Mm-hmm. So we got to actually take huh. the best of the, of the old stuff and find it and rig- figure out what, what mm-hmm. it was, what worked best, and then re- tell that same story, but it's not just a story now. Now it's also rituals and ideas and, uh, and, and, and educational models and ways of looking at Torah, all those old things, and just you know, start, start, start telling it again. But this time we're going to tell it like as if we're telling it for the first time so we can adjust and tweak but have all those important elements. And that's really what Judaism has done subconsciously throughout its, uh, its storied 3,000-year history. What we need to do now that we're kind of in a postmodern world is just to say, yeah, we're going to do it, but now we're going to be conscious of it. And that's a really new thing uh, to be able to kind of um, build it yourself, you know, DIY. But that's really what's the best way to reboot orth- modern orthodoxy is the, is the yeah. we just need a J.J. Abrams. Yeah. And, 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 and the movie, the, uh, the movie is a parallel, but better than, I mean, it's interesting because <laughs> it's in the movie, but I, I see before that. I, I think it's, you know, those orthodox forum series that why you put out. So there's one about, I don't know if it's on modern orthodoxy, but it's a continuity of halakha. And Sachs, our old chief rabbi over here, quotes, uh, I think it's Ronald Dworkin, who's a, a Jewish philosopher. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's Jewish, but he's basically American, I think, Harvard philosopher, who talks about how do you keep change and staying the same. And the metaphor Dworkin uses, I think, is about a TV series, right? So say, say you've got a long-running TV series and you're a new writer on it, right? And you get to write one of the characters. You can't make up what you like. The character has a personality, has a background. They can go in new directions, but you have to write it in a way where it's natural and believable that the character would do that in the world in which they live. Yes, it feels says, true. That's what the challenge of the next generation is. How do I, you know, how does, you know, Star Wars face feminism? How does it face postmodernism? How does it face good and bad aren't black and white anymore, right, in terms of terrorism, all that kind of stuff, and yet keep the ritual going, right? And the characters are believable. That, that's the point. If they get too weird and they, you know, if Han Solo becomes too hokey and makes too many jokes, he's not Han Solo anymore, right? But, but he is now, 30 years later, willing to believe in what he didn't, but it's completely acceptable because of what you said, what he's been experienced. So it's that ability to, to keep what is essential the same, the structure and the story and the, the world, and yet you can go in a totally different place that you couldn't imagine that you get to. Right. So I'm going to add two things to what you said because everything you said is brilliant. Two things. Okay, first of all, I think that's probably why J.J. Abrams had, spoiler alert, Han Solo killed in this episode. 
because right. it's true that he is the, 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 the driving force in the story that brings it back from the old days. But he's now saying we are self-sufficient. We do not need his credibility to make this work. We have something mm. that is powerful on its own that the people are going to want to come back to see what happens to Ray and to Finn and to Kylo Ren. They care about those people enough that they don't need to come back for Han Solo. So well, I agree, but, but and, and I, think, I think it's going even further. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you can save your father, or a parent can speak to their, a child can speak to their son and bring them back and create the love again, and you can repair the relationship. And sometimes you can't. So, you know, I, mean, I think my friend tweeted off the movie, you know, father and son shouldn't stand on bridges, especially in a Star Wars movie. It's always a bad mm. move. Yeah, I mean, you that's know, a famous trope at this point. Die. Exactly, you know, but the point is, right, Luke did save his father. That's the whole point of the movies. You can be saved. There's good in him. And Fat Hans is the same about his daughter. Leia, I know there's good in him. I know it. But this time, it's not enough. They killed the original trilogy. The whole message, the biggest message, you can be saved. Parents and children come together again. Abrams, on one level, is killing. It's amazing. Right? Hans Solo's death is the death of the idea of the first trilogy. Right, so I think some people were upset by this that that you know we 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 uh, we thought that everything was peaceful and happy at the end of the last episode that we saw of, of episode six, and now we see that there was actually it wasn't peace, and we see there's still bad people around, and people are disappointed. They ruined the myth of of Han and Leia, and Luke, you know, saving the world. And right. I think that anybody who really believed that it was going to be perfect after that, they were buying into their own myth. It's not the real myth of Star Wars. Star Wars doesn't think that everything's going to be perfect ever, and that's more of a reality-based assumption. And so what you're saying actually fits in well with that. It's saying it's sometimes possible to bring somebody back. That's really beautiful, and it's really nice, and you can hope for mm. trying. You can hope for that and try for that, but it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work, and sometimes yeah. it ends up biting you back. And I think that there's yeah, one... No, you, like, you have to be right. I I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you're a Batman fan. But um, when the original, uh, I think it might have been the second or the third Robin in the comics, um, they got to see where the Joker was beating him up, and they weren't sure whether to kill him or not. So they let the audience vote, should Robin die or not? And we loved Robin, right? But they still voted him to die, because the audience knew that stories have to be painful. Right, right, right. So um, that was what I was going to say, that know? there's also a part of this that I think it might depend on who is the character that is trying to save the other and in the, in the case of Luke, he was a very powerful, self-disciplined person who tried to build this. He built himself into that. Whereas Han, it's like this freewheeling, uh, no, no, mm. no strings attached, unmoored kind of person. And that maybe that's the kind of person that the story is saying is not the one who could bring somebody back. You need to have some grounding to bring people back. Maybe. Mm. Mm. Well, my daughter's explanation, and she's nine, of why Kaloran goes off. She goes, well, Abba, he's only half proper because... You know, his mother's there, so he's strong, the force is strong there, but Han didn't believe, right? And it's Han who makes his son weak and not able to handle the force. It's a mixed his, marriage. You know, freewheeling approach, which I thought was interesting that she said that. That is an um, excellent point. All right, Rafi, I wish we could talk forever and ever, and we'll have you back on the show soon, but I need to thank you for coming on today. We have to wrap up for, uh, for our show is about to end. Um, if people okay. want to find all your brilliant stuff on the Internet, how will they do so? Well, they can look at the LSGS website, www.LondonSchoolOfJewsStudies. That's lsgs.ac.uk. I've only got bits and pieces up there. Um, but uh, uh, there's bits and pieces of, of me on the Internet. You have to find it, I suppose. That's how it the works, search, right? The search is on. Find Rafi Zaram. Uh, it's all great stuff. And if you want to see a little bit more of the kind of stuff that we're talking about as far as movies and popular culture and new messages of Torah, uh, you could check out my website, shulontheinternet.com. That's shulontheinternet.com. And uh, you'll... You'll, you'll see a lot of what we've discussed here, there. So uh, that will be our final show for the year, and we're uh, wrapping up today's episode. Uh, one thing you want to take away from everything we've said is that there's so much to learn from so many different places, and there's Torah, there's endless Torah, and that's beautiful. We should not discount the beauty of Torah at all, even if we find things that are not Torah that are beautiful. But we should also be ready for learning Torah from places other than Torah itself. We should find love and beauty and inspiration and all the good things that we're looking for in as many places as we possibly can. And then it is Torah.